I think APL enables exploring your data more quickly and more intuitively than just about any other language that I've seen. So even if you want to link in and use some specialized libraries to do certain things that you're comfortable with, uh, doing it with APL as the sort of glue makes a lot of sense just because of how easy it is to integrate and clean up your data and manage your data and work with it and store it and serialize and pull and and all of that cleanup and, and management, I think, is made a lot easier in APL. Welcome to a special episode of ArrayCast. We are live from the Appleseeds 2022 conference, a one-day or half-day conference put on by Dialogue Limited, um, aimed at introducing the language to people that either are beginners or only have sort of dabbled in APL or Dialog APL or the array languages. So it's going to be a, a little bit of a different episode today because not only do we have our regular three slash four panelists, we also have all of the presenters from the conference today as this is the last session of that conference day. And we've also got a couple other extra people. And I think we'll go around and do introductions, brief introductions for everyone. But as usual, we'll start with our regular panelists and we will count uh, Rich as a presenter for today, even though he is a regular panelist in the past. So uh, we'll start with Bob, then go to Stephen, and then go to Adam. And from there, I'll then introduce the next set of people that'll give their brief introduction. So Bob, you take it away. Thanks, Connor. Uh, I am an imposter. Uh, I am a J uh, enthusiast here at an APL con conference, but I'm also an APL beginner. So actually, I kind of fit into both sides, but uh, that's what I'm here for. And uh, I'm really interested to hear what uh, newcomers have to say about APL. I'm Stephen Taylor. I'm an APL and Q programmer these days and fascinated to see what APL has grown into. I am Adam Brodzewski. I work full-time as an APL programmer for Dialog. I've been doing APL all my life, even when not professionally. So those are our three panelists. From here, we will go to brief introductions from, I believe we'll count it as uh, four presenters if we include Gita. So we'll start with Gita, and then we'll go in order of the presenters. So Rich, Stefan, and then Andrew. Yeah, I guess, I mean, if you were here at the beginning, you probably know who I am. I'm Gita Christensen, and I'm the Managing Director of Dialogue Limited. I've been using APL since 83. And actually, I think I have to admit that I stopped around 2005 when I became the Director of Dialogue because there hasn't really been time for coding. But I think I'm nearing retirement and then <laughs> I get back <laughs> to it. So that's me. I'm Rich Park. Uh, I also spoke at the beginning of today, um, APL evangelist and working on sort of teaching, training, getting the word of APL out there um, and thinking of projects to keep Gitter busy in retirement, I guess. <laughs> I'm Stefan uh, Kruger, I, I, one of the speakers in the conference. I'm a sort of um, array language fanboy, I guess. I, I, I try to learn uh, uh, new languages every year and I sort of got to APL via K and got, kind of got, got stuck and, and now I'm sort of trying to help spread the word really by, by uh, writing material uh, to help other people learn. I'm Andrew Sengel. I'm a kind of multidisciplinary software developer. Uh, I've been focused on Comma Lisp for a long time and then APL has been a, 
um, a more recent interest, but that has led me to develop my April APL compiler. And if you just saw my presentation, that's being leveraged in a hardware startup, Bloxel, and in many other areas. And uh, I'm eager to explore more potential connections between languages and programming communities. And last but not least, we have two other uh, panelists, I'll say, joining us. Uh, they are both employees of Dialog Limited, but more importantly, of course, they are past uh, guests on ArrayCast. So first we'll have Aaron introduce himself and then Rodrigo. Yeah, I'm Aaron Sue. I work on the Codefunds compiler, and I guess you call me a computing researcher at Dialog. And uh, I've been doing APL for a little while now. <laughs> and my name is Rodrigo Giron-Serron, but you can... You can just go with Rodrigo. And I work for Dialog as well. I've been learning APL for two years now. Still pretty much feel like a beginner. And yeah, I was this close to presenting today, but turns out I didn't. So, yeah. Awesome. So that, I think, is nine people in total, excluding myself. So I'm your host, Connor Hoekstra. Uh, I am an unprofessional array language programmer. Day-to-day, uh, -day I program in C++, but I'm a huge array language fan and Combinator fan, um, and super excited to have so many people here today on this episode, and uh, the way it's going to work. So we have, I think, three questions uh, queued up. I will be moderating the questions and uh, basically asking them to everyone that is in the chat, and we're going to get, I, I'm assuming, multiple different answers for each of the questions, unless if it's a simple question. And so if you have questions and you are attending uh, live, obviously, uh, feel free to drop them in the Q&A, and I will keep track of them, and uh, we'll go from there. And also, I'll be moderating the chat, and if some interesting discussion comes up there, we'll also relay it, relay it uh, live on this episode. So um, I think we will start with um, the first question that's queued up in Q&A, which is probably going to have a pretty short answer, but it's a, a certain amount entertaining. Uh, and maybe there will be a follow-up question that I will ask after it. And the question comes from Adnilson Delgado. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And it is, where can I find APL keycaps for mechanical, mechanical keyboards? Who wants to take this question? I can take that. Well, we do make keyboards, whole keyboards, not just the keycaps. And we have them in a US version a UK version, a German version, and a Danish version or Nordic keyboard. The keycaps were done in the past, predominantly for the IBM keyboards, and you might be able to find an antiquarian <laughs> bunch of those. But if that's not possible, then we do. Um, there's a guy who recently started making stickers for the keys, and you um, can find his. Um, details on our website as well if you want that but keycaps for different keyboards no it's there's a huge setup cost to make these and so we have to stick to a few options adam did you want to add anything to that uh Gideon mentioned the uh, ibm keyboards actually the if i remember right the employees of ibm's division are making keyboards and bought out to that part of ibm and set up something called unicom and lo and behold, they still produce APL keyboards with injection molded uh, APL uh, key. You can buy the caps themselves for Model M keyboards, or you can buy whole whole keyboards from them as well. And you can find all this on the on APL Wiki, just apl.wiki slash typing, and then you'll find something called hardware. You can, it also has links to dialogue selling keyboards. It's worth mentioning that uh, keycap production has 
considerably cheaper now than it was in the past, thanks to many people getting into designing them as enthusiasts. So if a significant number of people wanted APL keycaps, they could have them injection molded. The, uh, the recent keycap design has been using the top quality uh, double shot injection molding, which means the legends can never wear off. But uh, there might be something like that out there. I haven't checked myself. I've, I just follow the approach of, uh, you know, use a keycap legend and, you know, after a few days, you won't need it anymore. There's actually an APL Wiki article on mnemonics. Uh, if you look that up, uh, it's not really that hard to remember where the keys are. Yeah, it's also worth noting that if you have a Cherry MX keyboard, it's going to be a lot easier to source printed keycaps for that. The traditional die sublimation for the Model Fs and M keyboards has become harder to source. But there is a guy who's making brand new Model F keyboards who has sources in um, actual production facilities for producing uh, custom die sublimation projects that you could talk to if you had um, the volume for it. But otherwise, Cherry MX is probably the easiest one to find now uh, compared to Buckling Spring. At least that's my impression. That's what I should have mentioned is the Cherry MX that are getting a lot of support in aftermarket keycaps now. Lots of keyboards have those switches, so you can find a huge variety of keycaps for those Cherry MX. Yeah, but there's nothing quite like typing traditional uh, APL on an IBM Buckling Spring keyboard. Like, <laughs> you know, it's just... This is the way. It's it, Yes, it is the way. <laughs> well, a right. word of warning there. I noticed the fashion for revived... Model N keyboards amongst my younger colleagues, and I got I got hold of one. Yes, beautiful, a beautiful thing. Took up half my desk. Uh, well, my my partner complained she was going deaf, so I had to I had to move on. Now we see benefit of APL is you have to type many fewer keys than other programming languages, so much less shooting machine guns. All right, so we'll, we'll make sure that we link all of the links in the show notes, which um, we always do a great job with. Um, the follow-up question I sort of have to this is one of the most common uh, complaints or, I don't know, sort of uh, chirps, maybe you'll call it, on Twitter that I get is, uh, you know, how do you type and, uh, you know, these symbols? And I guess the, the, the form of the question will take, do you actually need or uh, an APL keyboard? Um, like, do you think it's a necessary thing to really get started with, with APL? Who wants to go first on this one? Never had one, never saw a need. You want to elaborate why why you don't think there's a need for it? Like I said, I just started with a, a legend and typed until I didn't need the legend anymore. But they all have they all have mnemonics like Adam was mentioning, like O for the circle, row R for row, I for O, I for iota. The encode and decode can be a little counterintuitive, but uh, most of them I found pretty easy to memorize. Rodrigo? I just, I think we need a clarification. Do you mean the physical keyboard or my keyboard <laughs> being able to type APL glyphs directly? Uh, I mean, more just like, uh, do you need glyphs on your on your keyboard, aka in the form of an APL bot purchase keyboard or in the form of, you know, uh, uh, a keyboard with mechanical key, keycaps that you can either get stickers for or buy, you know, custom printed ones? Um, because I think that's like, a lot of people have this aversion to like, well, it's going to be such an overwhelming or impenetrable task to learn how to type this stuff. And so I'm just trying to get the, get the sense of how people feel like, is that actually have, what did they, how did they find having to learn these symbols and type this? So these days I would just ask how many emojis do you use on a regular basis? Quite a few. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. 
simpler than typing emojis or I have a Japanese IME as well and and selecting the kanji for that or whatever is pretty straightforward. But um, I remember actually, I think it was like the second day of doing any APL at all. I was like on a Zoom call with Morton doing some pair programming. At one point he asks um, to get the tally of something and I kind of scanned across and, and I wasn't typing then, but I just clicked the symbol that looked most like tally to me and uh, it was like, how did you know know that? I don't know. I just kind of guessed it. Um, in terms of typing, yeah, I've I maybe I'm not enough of a fanboy actually because I don't have stickers or keycaps. I should I should probably get uh, get something. I literally just um, have that type of memory where yeah, it didn't take too long to figure out where everything is. So maybe you know maybe for some people it is actually really beneficial to have to have that option, the something to to remember um how to type the glyphs i know if you know when you're getting absolutely started at the beginning try apl has has two good methods one is the kind of classic uh we have it in the remote id ride as well it's the prefix key most people it's on the top left it's a back tick and then the keys are somehow associated mnemonically with the letters that they're associated with like back tick a is the alpha um i guess back tick w is omega yeah, back tick D is down style, and there's other things like that. Some people have actually, I mean, I don't know whose idea or who implemented this, but the try EPL uh, input method also lets you do this tab input composition symbols thing. So you can type two ASCII characters that kind of look like the symbol you're going for, and then you press tab, and then it completes it into the APL symbol. And... You know, for a long time, I didn't think there was anyone really using that until I got a message asking, oh, can I get a Mac OS tab completion keyboard? So then I borrowed the Office Mac and and made a little a keyboard layout for Mac OS that lets you type two symbols that vaguely look like APL symbols. And then I think it's Alt you have to press instead of tab. But um, there are lots of methods. Sorry, Aaron. No, I was going to say I'm a little old school. I think one of the best ways to learn is you just get a virtual printout of the uh, key layout and put it right above your keyboard and mm. try to encourage yourself not to actually look at the keys. But I think it's related to touch typing. I think the value you get from learning how to, not to look at the keys is really quite high. We'll go to Stephen and then Adam. I was going to say it's muscle memory, even ordinary typing. I mean, well, I say ordinary using it, using the ASCII set, you stop, lo you stop looking at the keys and you learn where they are, or your fingers learn where they are. They, you could argue, well, can you learn an alternate set? So you type um, back tick A for alpha, for example. Most of us have found that you can do that. It's not different from regular typing, I guess that's my point. Yeah, did you want to add something, Adam? Well, I wanted to answer Mark Schurer's question in the in the Q and A. We'll get that. We'll get to that one. Uh, <laughs> I am a master moderator. We will get to Mark Schurer's question uh, uh, in a little bit. And I guess the last thing I'll add, because we don't want to spend the whole time talking about keyboards, is that one of the things that I wondered why APL didn't have for the longest time was just a way to like type in uh, like the name of it and then hit some autocomplete key. So like in Julia, uh, I think. Uh, 
one of the ways because they also support Unicode characters. They have like a, the same jot symbol for compose. And the way that I think you type that is you go backslash and then you just type out compose. And then when you either do a tab or a space, it just converts that into the symbol. And obviously that's a lot slower than learning the, you know, muscle memory of just back tick or special, uh, you know, key plus the single letter, but it's a great, you know, onboarding way if you know what they're called. And even that's the thing is in APL, there's a bunch of nicknames like the, the comment, uh, lamp glyph is, you know, sort of nicknamed R2D2. And so in, uh, the ride editor, you can, I think, uh, if you do a single back tick plus the single key, you get a symbol. But if you do two back ticks, you can actually type in what it's called. So you can go back tick, back tick, uh, lamp, or if you know the nicknames, you can go R2D2 and then it'll complete it, which I think is both awesome for beginners and uh, super fun. But that's uh, unless there's any anything anyone wants to add, uh, and we'll close up this uh, this question on um, on keyboards. You're going to be surprised by the next question, then Connor. You go you go ahead and read it though. Well, I'm not sure what we think. The uh... oh, I see. We're going to go out of order um, because oh, this is a follow up. Uh, okay, sure not. The this top is the one for you. Well, no, because I've been monitoring both the chat and the Q and A uh, as the expert uh, moderator of questions. Oh, so it's so up to you whether we want to go away we from can go, keyboards and back, or yeah, we'll we'll, we'll answer. So this is actually Mark Schur's second question, uh, which is why I was confused a little bit earlier. So Mark Schur asks: APLX had a nice pop-up keyboard displaying display showing glyphs on the keyboard. Does Dialog have something like that to help newbies? So yeah, Adam, do you want to answer that? Yeah. So. We don't actually have something like that, but now that I think of it, that would be pretty easy to supply. Um, so we don't have a pop-up per se that you can like keep open as part of the session. Do you just undock the language bar? Sure, but that doesn't show you. That doesn't show the language, the keyboard layout. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. So, so, but that, but but again, it should be really easy to uh, to add that. I'll look into the. I thought that was on Try APL. Try APL has it, but that's the whole. That's the whole question is whether the actual development environment has that as a feature and then Fiona is really nice and to paste the link into chat which is defense.dialog.com slash n underscore keyboards dot htm uh, which lists all, all the different key uh, layouts that are like default type uh, layouts as well and that's and that is also part of the install so you can actually pick them up there and that's why I'm saying it should be really easy to add such a pop-up I'll look into it it is quite easy we had one for quite a while, but nobody was using it. And that was when JD made the language bar, the list of the glyphs at the top of the development session. And I find that I use that. I have like Steven memory in my hands for all the normal glyphs, but all the new ones that I haven't sort of used in anger, I am not entirely sure where they are, but I find it in the language bar and then you just click on it and it's inserted in your session. So, I mean, yeah, we had one, but nobody used it. And nobody complained when it disappeared um, when the language bar came on. So, so I think, I mean, try and use the language bar is my own recommendation. It, it also shows how to type things, by the way. Yes, it does. I feel like, yeah, at some point now in the next couple months, there's going to be a video that comes out because we just chatted for 20 minutes of all the different methods to type symbols because uh, <laughs> um, there, there are a bunch of different um, uh, methods. But yeah, I think I think the, in summary, 
it's a lot easier than you think it is. Um, I've actually never explicitly done anything to learn how to type APL symbols. It's just kind of comes, you start, you do it once, twice. And then after the fifth time, somehow you're, you, you remembered it. It's like, sometimes I forget my passwords for certain accounts, uh, cause I'm typing it on my cell phone and I don't actually remember what my password is. It's just like, I know, Oh, I've been doing this for six years. It's muscle memory, but I have, to, if I have to type it with two thumbs, I can't remember. So, um, the brain is, uh, an amazing, uh, a tool for picking up these things sort of subliminally. So we'll move to, uh, we're actually going to come back to Brian's question, Brian Becker's question. Cause I think that one's going to yield a longer response from folks, but we'll skip to Mark Scher's first question. Uh, that they asked. And uh, it reads, I like to learn from reading several different books. Can anyone recommend good introductory APL books other than the mastering book? I'm aware that there's an online update to the book in progress. And I really like Stefan's learning APL site, but looking for other references as well. So do folks have um, any good answers to that as good sort of introductory books or material for learning APL other than those two? I guess as I probably mentioned uh, right at the beginning, I mean, the APL book is tends to be the place to go to find all the collections of this. So I did paste a link to apl.wiki forward slash learning underscore resources with a, a vast collection of things. There's uh, also split up. Sorry, oh, there's oh. also apl.wiki slash books for books. For books. Um, um, I've always found it, this isn't quite a book, but I, I got a lot of value out of reading the old APL quote quad. Um, papers and uh things inside of the vector journal archives and i was going to add this isn't necessarily a book but probably at the point where i am at in my learning journey uh, one of the most useful tools is actually a tool that adam built called apple cart which is sort of a searchable database of small expressions uh, with a description so you can type in if you want to I don't know, do something trivial like reverse a list. Like there's obviously a glyph for that, but if you didn't know that, you could just type in reverse and it'll match all the descriptions of the expressions. And so a lot of times when I don't know how to do something, I'll just go search it there. And either the exact expression that I want is there, which is perfect. And, or it'll something very similar that I can just tweak will be there. So not necessarily a reading resource per se, but a very, very useful resource. Um, at that any other resources just in general so maybe outside of books that people want to recommend um i know at least like three or four of the folks here have youtube channels where they post uh you know little apl five to ten minute videos or even longer um i just want to say that i started out learning apl in a chat room online and there's a what is it 50 conversations bookmarked where adam goes through many different glyphs and some ideas and some concepts and so it worked decently for me i'm not totally incompetent with apl i, I was going to add uh adam's um i think he does them weekly is the interactive sessions where he he works through a problem and i i think books are a great way of you know using as a reference but when you actually have somebody working something in front of them and youtube videos can work as well but doing it live is i, I think that's the power move yeah, it's great when you have that opportunity. Uh, I don't know this particular resource, What's the, but Eric Sargent in chat has pasted Understanding APL parens in only 43 pages by Susan M. Bryson. So I'll have to check that out among the yeah many other resources that exist. I, don't, I wonder where you can find that. Um, yeah, the one of the craziest, well, 
No, one of the great things about APL uh, and its history is definitely the amount of resources that exist from decades of publications from different conferences. A lot of that is catalogued fairly well on the APL wiki in addition to, so, you know, the tutorials and books that uh, exist, like Mastering Dialogue, will obviously hold your hand going through uh, the basics of the language. But, you know, I think as people have mentioned here, at a certain point, you're going to be looking for, um, I guess, broader and, and deeper tricks and applications and ways of doing things that uh, aren't so easily put into a structured order like that. Um, and those can be found in things like Vector articles, APL quote quarters, Aaron said, um, with YouTube, uh, people solving problems on YouTube, <laughs> uh, should we plug all the channels? Well, I was going to say, I can just go through it cause I'm, I'm staring at it. So I'm going to go from like just top left to bottom, right on my screen. Um, I know Bob has a YouTube channel, uh, on Jay, uh, Rich, you have a YouTube channel under the handle rickety P I believe you haven't been posting, uh, as of late, but you have a huge backlog of videos. Uh, Steven, I don't think you have a YouTube channel, but I know you have a blog and you did a great series on recently on the advent of code, I think in Q, um, which had some really, really, uh, sort of enlightening solutions there. Uh, Aaron, I know you have a YouTube channel too. You don't post super regularly, but there's a couple of awesome talks that you have posted there. You did a, was it one hour or two hour deep dive into your code defunds compiler, which is mind blowing. Um, and there's also like a hacker news thread that sort of that came out of, uh, Adam, you have a YouTube channel that you just, I'm not sure if you started it recently or you just started posting the quest videos too recently. Um, Rodrigo, you have a YouTube channel where you saw leak called problems in APL. And then, uh, I'm not actually sure if Gita, Stefan or Andrew do the three of you. So Gita does not, uh, Stefan and Andrew, do you have YouTube channels? No, not at the moment, but I'm pulled between a lot of things right now. Yeah. Andrew has multiple talks about April online and also Seed, which was a prior project that uh, Andrew worked on. And Stefan obviously has his book. So, I mean, bet between the and I, I, I guess I should mention, I also have a YouTube channel, which I flip flop between, uh, you know, videos on a bunch of programming languages and then covering different textbooks. So, uh, you know, mine's less concentrated than some of the other folks that have YouTube channels here. So I think, you know, of the 10 of us, uh, I think, what is that, like eight or nine of us are, are producing some amount of digestion content in one form of another so we will i'm sure uh we'll put all of that stuff in the show notes um uh, rich yeah i should also add um dialogue limited youtube channel and dialogue user meeting youtube channels but both of those collectively um you can find on dialogue.tv and that includes not just you know webinars and and sort of teaching materials about specific topics but also presentations from our users talking about the things that they actually do with apl uh, in the real world yeah. And I think all the talks from this conference today, Apple Seeds, the last time we did one of these live recordings at the Dialogue APL conference in November of 2021, I think it was, or late October, um, all of those talks are online. Um, and I think maybe maybe we should start like a uh, intro to APL uh, list of talks because Rodrigo just gave, uh, and Aaron gave talks, although Aaron's was less on the introductory side uh, compared to Rodrigo's at a functional conf 2022 conference just in the past week. Um, so maybe it'd be worth, cause some of these talks are not at, you know, not given at dialogue, uh, conferences. If we created some curated list, we could, you know, add talks that happen, uh, from different conferences like functional conf or, or functional conferences that might be a useful resource for learners. Um, 
All right, we'll wrap up that that section on on content, and maybe we'll hop back now to uh, Brian Becker's question from uh, a while ago now, where he asked, uh, "I'd like people to uh, comment on clarity versus efficiency," and adds in parentheses that I have some rather strong opinions on the subject. Um, so, if you want, maybe you can type in the in the chat, uh, Brian, a little bit of your your strong opinions, and maybe we can fold them into this. Uh, who wants to to tackle this this question first? Rodrigo? Yeah, I just want to be the one to give the annoying answer of it depends, right? Are you writing performance-critical code? Or if I am writing code to teach others, then I'll prefer clarity over performance any time of the day and twice on Sunday. Uh, But if it's performance-critical, I'll just go for performance, probably. All right, who's going to hit the tennis ball back across the court? Uh, Stefan? Well, I, I think, uh, I mean, Rodrigo's obviously right, Mike, but, but I, I think in the ideal scenario, the the elegant, clear clear code should also be the efficient. That's the, 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 the principle of the least surprise. And this is what I, why, what I found as with, with learning APL, that, that, that this was something that took a long time to, to um, sort of wrap my head around, that the, the code that I found, that I wrote, that I was obvious and clear was always the slowest, yeah? And then so, so, someone someone uh, chapped up in, in the chat room and said, you can do it like this instead. And it's like, you know, two orders of magnitude faster. And it t- took a long time to develop that sort of intuition, um, which comes naturally to me in other languages like Python or C or whatever, because obviously got more more experience in what's actually going on behind the scenes, right? And so I think that's that's the bit that I found so somewhat counterintuitive in APL sometimes, that, that the, 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 the super fast stuff doesn't, didn't seem to sort of marry with my, my idea what's obvious, uh, at least not initially. Aaron? Um, I think, Bob, did you have something you wanted to say? or I... I, I'm probably going to say, I'm probably going to say what you're going to say, which I think clarity is subjective, because if you really know this stuff well, and I've heard Aaron talk about this, it's clear. Um, but if it's something that you've sort of come up with to be efficient, you're not comfortable with, sort of as what Stefan's saying, you may want to, you know, provide more background in case, as Brian points out in the chat, you may be reading it in a year, you may have forgotten some of the tricks you've come up with. So I, I think it is, clarity is kind of subjective. If you're teaching somebody, then of course you're going to try and make it more clear because this, the subject you're dealing with is a person who may not understand it. So, so I've got a, a pretty um, strong opinion here, I guess, uh, which is that both always and we should be able to have our cake and eat it too. Um, the, the, uh, the way I think of it is like there's three points on the triangle. You've got your future self that's going to have to read some code or that everybody else is going to read the code, the, the, the results systemically of what happens when you follow one approach or the other. Then you've got yourself in the moment trying to make something happen, how much clarity or efficiency benefits you. Um, and then you've got the actual language designers who are working to build these languages. And I think people always forget about the language designers or how you build your systems because clarity isn't sort of an isolated thing. It's something that appears emergent out of a context and efficiency also has the same effect. So if you're, we want clarity, we need clarity. Clarity is sort of the preeminent point of view, but clarity also has to involve efficiency. Like there's, there's an element here of clarity of understanding how your code is going to perform, uh, clarity of understanding what's going to happen with your code, understanding what the ramifications of this code in the future are. Can you predict what its scaling behavior is going to be? Can you, you know, understand 
how much technical debt I'm incurring into the future, perhaps because of performance issues. And, you know, there's an aspect of language design there where you want to really maximize the, um, the property of clarity, be the most clear solution, quote unquote, also having to be the most fast solution. And you want to try to think about how you can design and approach and architecture systems so that these things begin to be the case. And one of the things that makes that difficult is that we often build our software in layers. And the problem with layers is that even though we in theory have localized clarity at each of these layers, the moment you insert one of these hard barriers, you remove your ability to change your decision about clarity any further down than where you're at, at that point. And you force decisions of clarity on anybody who's above you in that stack. And so I've seen massive um, performance issues crop up systemically in a lot of programming fields simply because um, they're using, uh, the, as the layers get up, every little piece seems clear. But then if you look at the whole system, it breaks down because you've introduced just enough combinatorial complexity that's, you know, at each layer, it just builds and builds and builds until you can't actually fix the problem. And that's a big issue in my, in my point of view, is if you reach a point where you can't actually make your code efficient, if you need to, then, then you, you've, you're no longer really clear in my opinion, because then you're just, you're making tons of work for yourself in the future. Andrew, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah. So this uh, ties into something that I've discussed uh, about April at some of at uh, at some in some other discussions so I see fundamentally when you're talking about clarity and considering these issues of performance I, I see a lot of programming really the fundament of programming is about balance and creating balance so one of the reasons I implemented April was to allow me to balance my code in a way that I couldn't before. Here's an example. The Bloxel uses animation specs to define its animations. When I wish to define a custom animation behavior, I would have, if I were using just common lisp, I would have two choices. Either I would have to define the custom behavior with many loops inside the animation spec and bulk it out by dozens of lines, or I would have to place that custom behavior somewhere else put it in uh, some file uh, collecting all these animation uh, functions. Many of these functions are only used in one animation. So in that case, I would be bulking out my code with all these functions that are only used for one thing. And that goes to what Aaron was saying about creating these layers and layers of complexity that can grow to a point where you can no longer manage performance or manage the development itself. What April allows me to do is to create custom animation functions that only take a line or two of code. So those can fit neatly inside those specs. Then that spec is comprehensible to me in a way that it wouldn't be if I were shunting the code elsewhere or if I were blowing up their length. That kind of balancing act is what I see as really the, the heart of, of programming and understanding programming. So if something is not clear, then ultimately, you will not be able to maintain performance because performance is not just defined in the moment. Performance is assessed over the lifetime of your application and for all the use cases that it needs to fill. And you won't have the flexibility to meet those needs if you can't understand your code base. Yeah, we always hear about notation as a tool of thought, but um, you, you can almost think on top of that is it's it's a notation for comprehension. Once you really understand the the symbol set it sort of sounds like that's what andrew was talking about and i have to completely agree with um what aaron said 
that I want my cake and I want to eat it too, or whatever the expression is. I want both. I want the most uh, clear and expressive solution to be the fastest solution. Um, and I think a great example of this where currently array languages don't have this is if you do plus slash iota and then a number you're just that is summing up the numbers from one to whatever number you specify uh this is going to be a lot slower than the constant time mathematics formula of the handshake expression of n times n plus one divided by two because you just instead of building up a sequence and then summing it all up, you're just plugging N into this formula and then getting it. But in a language like C++, because we have such an advanced compiler, compilers can actually see through that and they can transform that code into a constant time formula. And the fact that array languages are built out of these primitive operations, I actually think that there's a way, way bigger opportunity for array languages to build these kinds of like AST transformations, which if you were to build that into an array language you could act you actually could have both where you know you know the alternative to writing plus slash iota uh insert number is actually programming that n n times n plus one divided by two but like in my opinion the plus slash iota number is way way more clear because it's you know three symbols uh plus plus a number um but uh yeah, well, I guess that's like it's a future thing that um, and I know a lot of that stuff is actually built into um, the the APL language. And you can see it in the ride editor whenever something highlights as I think it's pink in the Dracula syntax highlighting. They actually have like a syntax highlighting color for idioms. So like you'll be typing and then all of a sudden your three or four character expression will turn some color. And then that's that's the editor letting you know, oh, actually, we have a built in special case for that. And it's going to be a lot faster than whatever the naive implementation of that um does anyone have comments or thoughts they want to add to that i was going to say that's what i see as the ultimate destination for april is a more deep ast transformation for optimizing code because list gives me some more flexibility in dealing with semantic structures than other languages might obviously it'll take a lot of work and a long road to get there but that could be uh and and common Lisp does support SIMD operations, and there's potential for integration with uh, GPU libraries like ArrayFire, but that's all on the horizon. But uh, if that were realized, it could be possible to achieve some significant performance gains that way. Aaron? So I was gonna say that we, um, part of the Codefense project was researching this, this question, and uh, there one really good example of this is in uh, Loop Fusion because a significant amount of research has gone into um, for things like polyhedral loop optimization models and other things like this to try to prove that certain operations can be done and fused and looped in a traditional programming uh, language that's imperative and very loopy. But what I found is that that same kind of code when you express it in APL is an order of magnitude less complex to prove that it's fusible. It, it's almost trivial at that point. It can be done either at runtime or at compile time very efficiently. And you know, so when you have a language that does this sort of stuff, the clear expression turns out to also be the one that you can analyze and make much faster uh, compared to other options. But I also want to highlight that a lot of people focus on the computation side of performance, but on our modern machines, memory performance is a huge deal and a huge bottleneck in a lot of applications. And oftentimes array representations of your data structures with the clear APL formulation of a, prop, a problem set in arrays is often 
many orders of magnitude more efficient in terms of space and memory than your alternative representations. And what you end up with there is not just space savings, but because you have reduced um, memory pressure, you end up having a lot more compute performance over that same operation. Uh, so I found this in my compiler as well, where we're talking about the differences being like a gigabyte or a one and a half gigabytes versus 64 megabytes. And when you're talking about those orders of magnitude in terms of the data you're working with, the performance difference is huge, despite the fact that you're actually using the clearest representation you can. Gita? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I'm just talking from experience that sometimes you get these performance um, surprises and it turns out that maybe if you reverse or rotate the data before you actually apply exactly the same formula, it's like a magnitude, uh, number of magnitudes faster. And so it actually teaches you what goes on under the hood and you learn how to organize your data. So in organizing the arrays, the data for the computations, you can actually achieve both speed and clarity because you still have the clear computation, but if you organize your data better, um, you also get the speed. Yeah, and that's, and that's one of my favorite things about um, working with the dialogue APL in the, in the form of, you know, the editor that comes with it or ride is, and we saw it, I believe in, uh, Stefan's presentation is the little compare X, or there's another way to spell it with, you know, bracket runtime is that although some languages like Python have like a little time it, or, you know, you can do that in the REPL. I don't think I've seen in any other language an expression where you can just pass it three or four different quoted expressions and then it'll evaluate it and give you this little beautiful histogram. Like the first time I saw that in a presentation, I was like, oh my goodness, that is, it's so useful because so many times one of the properties of not just APL, but array languages in general is that you can find six or seven different ways to spell something. And you might have some in the back of your mind, like, oh, this is a using an inner product, or this is using a bunch of linear, what I think are linear time operations. So you have a sense of what's the fastest, but a lot of the times you know, you need to profile to actually know like what is the fastest. And it's so easy to do that in Dialogue APL. You can just pass in your different expressions. You get this little thing and, and it teaches you very quickly. And like one time I did it with like eight different expressions and then everything was like zero or 1%. And then the one that used two different sorts was like, you know, 3000 or something like that. And I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Cause sort is, is slow. And as soon as you get rid of that one, you know, they all become a lot more legible. Um, and I guess I'll, I, there's two comments in the chat. We said uh, we'd read from Brian, the individual who asked the original question. Uh, and uh, he wrote, uh, and this is, you know, answering the clarity versus efficiency where we sort of started. Unless there's a huge performance improvement, clarity should always rule. Just remember, you may be looking at this code in a year. Or worse, someone less capable than you will need to look at it in a year. And yeah, I, I can't remember how many times in my career I've been staring at a code, piece of code a year later being like, who in, who, who did this? And then I go to, you know, uh, get history and, uh, <laughs> and it was me. Um, and I was like, why didn't I write a comment here? Um, and then we also have a, a comment from, uh, uh, the CTO of dialogue limited. Um, 
is uh, Morton Kromberg, uh, who writes in the chat, uh, Dialog's goal is that the clearest code should be the fastest if this is reasonably possible in quotations marks. Um, as in any system that contains a lot of optimizations, this isn't always true. As previously mentioned, we are keen to hear about it when it isn't. The least intuitive cases are typically operators that take user-defined functions, including derived functions as operands, such as each, rank, and stencil. In these cases, the choices of cases to optimize is rarely obvious. Um, and then goes on to say the stencil case that Stefan mentions where the defunct case is optimized, but the tacit form of the same function is not, is due to a decision by Roger Huey uh, to only special case the defunct forms because he found them more pleasant. Interesting. So there's a little piece of language lore from uh, Roger Huey for uh, many of our listeners will know is the uh, original implementer of um, the J language and then went on to work on Dialog APL as well. Um, any follow-up comments? I know we, I, we've actually got a question from uh, Ray Polivka in uh, the Q&A that says, how do you know what is efficient in dialogue? A new user has no idea what would be efficient, um, and there hasn't been too much discussion on this from a, a new user's point of view. Yeah, so I was going to say that there, um, there usually at every dialogue user meeting, there is some discussion around this. And dialogue has in its documentation the, a list of idioms that it recognizes. And it published uh, in Roger published a list of special cases for stencil that you can look at. So the first start is to know what, what things are recognized as idioms and what aren't. And then the next steps, if you really want to know what's fast and what's not, is you look at the documentation around the data types that are used in the um, interpreter. And from there, the all you really need, and this is one of the nice things about APLs, all you really need to get an idea on the performance above that is to recognize how many operations, roughly speaking, a given primitive needs to work on in order to get its work done. And then you can sort of count that and get pretty accurate. And I, I've put up a little performance manual in the CodeFunds documentation precisely for this reason to help give people an intuition about what will and will not be fast. And those rules generally also apply to Dialog's interpreter because the, the language has similar um, or proportional performance across the board. Um, so any of the dialogue talks about specific um, idioms that have been optimized is a great place to start. And usually there's one of those in every user meeting or a couple. Um, and then the, you know, just some basic reasoning about the groups and classes of your primitives and, and what their asymptotic complexity are. And that that's all you really need. Andrew? And uh, Gita just mentioned uh, a much uh, simpler something much simpler than that, which is the, the highlighting of idioms in Ride. So that's something that you could point out to a new user fairly quickly. Yeah, I would echo what Aaron said. Is, um, in, it's sort of the similar as most languages, is that if you know the time complexity of each of your individual sort of primitives or operations, so like in, in C++, we have an algorithm header, and there's you know sorts that are n log n, there's reductions that are linear, there's scans that are linear, and, and it's usually just you know you're looking across the board of what primitives are you using and you can get a, a good estimate but i mean i'm always the worst uh i always think especially in c because the compiler is doing so much work when you do hyphen o2 with optimization is i'm like i know what this is i know what's going to happen and then you know we've got all this compile time stuff too and i compile the program and it's literally compiles down to nothing like it's just it returns the answer and there's no generated assembly and i'm like oh uh, okay i guess i didn't know what was happening so yeah profiling is always i think a um 
a great place to start. Um, so we, I think we've got about 10 minutes left and we've, I've, I see two questions, one in the queue and then one from the chat. We'll go with the one from the chat earlier, which is from Joao, um, uh, who asks, uh, any plans on an APL OCR? And OCR, for those of you that don't know, stands for Optical Character Recognizer or Recognition. Um, someone would be able to write APL on paper and get code from it. Or in a potentially different world, you know, um, you know, use on your phone, you could uh, sort of the same way that they have like uh, Chinese pinion character recognizers, um, you could get the same thing. So are there is maybe it already exists? And if not, are there plans to do that in the future? Does anybody know? I dream of it on a regular basis. <laughs> um, but my, I've got too many projects to do already. <laughs> You might be one of the only ones whose writing could be read by one of these devices. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised. I know Google, they had um, an OCR challenge where um, I think it was like it was like one of those alpha challenges, too, where you would just go to some website and they would tell you to draw a duck in a house and like people would do terrible versions of it. But they use that as a training set and like you would draw two lines as the roof and it would guess like house or something. And I was like, well, I wasn't even done. Uh, so you'd be surprised at how good these systems can be. Um, Adam, what were you going to say? Well, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the project, but there's actually somebody who's working on um, a handwriting interface for an APL like language with the eventual goal of it also working for say dialog APL. Um, and that seems to be really neat. Let's see if I can figure out where it is. And I see someone raising their hand uh and they've also just commented in the chat ragu says a new kind of paper by i'm not going to pronounce that correct mel malage toast yeah that's that's the one that's the one so this is a new like an actual is this kind a of digital, like, paper, digital paper no no the idea is just that you take a device that has handwriting capability like a tablet and a mm -hmm. stylus or something and then there's an application that looks at what you're writing and actually the target set of characters for APL is relatively small. So doing OCR is not very hard. The problem is when you have a wide range of characters um, and yeah. that apparently already works. So. Yeah. so it's a very doable problem. It's just, you know. Yeah, I, I think most off the top of my head, most of the symbols um, are, are pretty distinct. Um, and even if it's similar to like a, um, uh, a Japanese or Chinese or Korean input method. A lot of the times when you are typing it in, like they, when you're learning the language, they have like the same thing. You, 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 you draw it because you don't know how to type it and it'll give you a couple different options. So like, I'm trying to think like the logical and or, or, and like the union uh, or intersection ones in APL, like those are slightly similar. If you don't get the, if you don't get the point at the top of the logical and right, but even if the the program showed you both options, then you could just type on it with your hand. It would it would be a, a pretty interesting tool. If anybody wants to take this on, I really dream of having a portable projector REPL environment where I can carry it along and set it down and it projects a REPL session onto a whiteboard. And so then I can write up my APL and it evaluates on the whiteboard while I'm writing stuff out. Oh, wow. that's what I really want. It sounds like Aaron's offering mentorship. If there's someone that wants to do all the heavy lifting, uh, Aaron will gladly mentor you uh, <laughs> to get his dream become a reality. Um, that reminds that reminds me that something I envisioned at one point was using uh, using tactile controllers like on a video game pad to input letters 
for a programming language. And APL would obviously be one of the best candidates because you have all these one character functions and operators or anything that has a real strong autocomplete system where you could, it would have a focus on navigation and moving things around. And then to type, you would lean on the auto recognition and auto completion as much as possible. Awesome. I think, I think, Unless if there's any last comments on on this, we'll maybe move to what looks like our could be our last question, um, and that is from once again Ed Nilsson Delgado, who asks, as a data analyst slash engineer, how can APL help me with my job? Uh, Gita, yeah, I have um, a bit on that. I mean, <clears throat> the way you work with data in APL allows you to explore them and actually visually inspect your data, or at least a bite of it if it's a big data set. But just um, I think half a year ago or like that, Richard and Rodrigo and I visited a science um, fair for solutions to visualize climate projects. And we worked with a bunch of guys who were having a lot of data that they wanted to analyze and they used all used R, but the biggest problem was to organize the data for the analysis they wanted uh, to run. And every time we figured a new strategy to look at the data, they had to go away one night and reorganize them. And some guy had been working all night writing a program to reorganize the data. That's the kind of thing that's really easy to do with APL. You get your data in, you inspect them. Are there any outliers? You do the summary statistics, and then you start organizing them for the, if you use R, if you use other kinds of statistical packages or business analysis tools or stuff like that, you can organize your data cleaned and nicely organized for these tools. So, but obviously you can also write solutions to problems that nobody has solved before, but start with looking at your data. Anyone want to add to that? Yeah, I, I would just reiterate that I think APL enables exploring your data more quickly and more intuitively than just about any other language that I've seen. So even if you want to link in and use some specialized libraries to do certain things that you're comfortable with, uh, doing it with APL as the sort of glue makes a lot of sense just because of how easy it is to integrate and clean up your data and manage your data and work with it and store it and serialize and pull and and all of that cleanup and, and management I think is made a lot easier in APL and it can be very useful as a as a tool to make everything link together a lot nicer. Yeah, I mean even if at the start if you're currently using different packages that have different purposes and you're spending a fair amount of effort munging the data to go from one output into the next input. You know, you can start by doing that type of manipulation fairly straightforwardly in APL, but eventually you might find it even better to just implement all that functionality straight in APL instead of having to rely on all the packages, things like dplyr or whatever. Actually, I mean, that that's a series of functions that are similar to some APL primitives. Um, yeah, a lot of those data manipulations, pandas and, and NumPy, that type of stuff. You know, those are always compared to APL because of the similarities of what those packages implement and what's already available out of the box in APL. Um, I, I think one of the things that uh, if you're 
if you're a programmer, if you've, if you've already had a programming language, one of the things that APL does is that its REPL, its, its redevelop print loop, um, allows you to play with it quite a bit. And I think that really opens up your understanding of the problem you're working with. And I think in a lot of cases, that understanding is what an engineer is really trying to get a handle on. Um, in the end, they may want to have something that's optimized and does the job, but if it's something new, being able to go in and interact with the data and see what it's doing, depending on the scale, maybe a smaller scale. I think Stefan did that with, with some of his genetic stuff when he did his presentation. You start small, work around till you understand it, and then expand. And APL is particularly good with that. It's It just gives you a much better sense of the problem you're working with. Andrew, I think you had your hand up for a second. Uh, yeah, so that's that's exactly what I experienced working on Bloxel, I would not have been able to do the things I did with any other approach. And that was just another form of data munging because I need to mash up these pixels and animations in different ways. I've live coded things at events that would have taken me hours to write if I was writing loops in common Lisp or another language. It's, it's really about shrinking the feedback loop. That's what I've, I've worked to do in a lot of my projects is shrink the feedback loop when someone is working on something because what, uh, what kills productivity more than anything else is when it takes a long time for you to get your results back. I mean, that's why we all like interactive environments, REPLs, uh, instead of having to compile everything and, and wait for it and then test it. So that, that shrinking the feedback loop to me is the, the key functionality in reducing the time from ideation to realization. So that's the, the biggest win you would get for any kind of data processing. Aaron? Yeah, another way I think we can think about the shrinking the feedback loops is that as you get better with APL, the amount of extra tooling that you have to depend on tends to shrink. And so you can actually, like it can get pretty complicated trying to manage a pretty complex software stack, pulling things from here, tracking which documentation is what, which ones are up to date with which versions and making sure you're compatible. And, uh, is your build system working right? And there's a whole bunch of things that you end up having to manage. And APL often allows you to really close that up and you don't have to have nearly as complex a software stack to get the same work done. And I found that to be a very big bonus that you know, oftentimes I can just implement something in APL and simplify my entire software architecture so that I don't have this extra complexity. And it saves me a lot of brain cycles over time because I'm not worrying about all of this software architecture stuff. And I'm focusing more on solutions to my problems and how I'm thinking about and understanding the, the domain. And yeah, I've just had, and maybe this is where we'll start to, to wind down because we're just at time. Uh, I just had an epiphany literally in the last five minutes <laughs> listening to this last answer. And it's it ties into that you, um, for those that sort of follow different programming languages, you always hear about the people bouncing off of certain languages like Haskell or like APL. You know, it's it sometimes, some people immediately fall in love with it, like myself. Uh, but other people, it takes them a couple different times because they find either the syntax or something about the language, like a little bit, um, you know, it's it's a barrier to entry. And I've always wondered, you know, uh, why why is it that I immediately fell in love with the language? And why doesn't everyone immediately fall in love with the language? And it ties into the fact that um, I was kind of thinking that you can think of APL as like the OG Excel spreadsheet. Like APL existed way before... Um, Excel spreadsheets did. And what was the VisiCalc was the first one on like the Apple II. And that was uh, a huge, you know, popular piece of software. 
And I, I realized that like, I, I love Excel. I've always loved Excel. At one point I had three different uh, Excel versions, 2003, 2007, and 2017 or something, or 13. I can't, which, which whatever one second edition of the ribbon. And uh, I think maybe that has something to do with it. I don't really know why I love Excel so much. It's something about like, I, you know, I did a lot of visual basic application programming, which is pretty awful behind the beautiful interface of like looking at a grid of data. And, and I think my love for like that model when I discovered APL and like the outer product, I was like, oh my goodness, this is like, this is like the, the better, best version of Excel. It's interactive. It's more dynamic. Um, you know, the rank polymorphism is just absolutely beautiful. And this sort of ties back to the original question that Ed Nelson asked, which is, you know, as a data analyst or engineer, how does this help you? It's like the most powerful system when your uh, data comes in the form of tables or matrices. It's like the perfect tool. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is like, you can express all data in, in uh, the form of tables and matrices. Uh, it just, it might not come in that form, but you can find a way to represent graphs as adjacency lists and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's my sort of a little monologue on, uh, maybe you need to learn to love Excel first or, and then you'll immediately fall in love with it or spend, a, spend like a couple months learning the power of Excel and then APL will just be like, oh my God, this is so much better. Um, Rich, you're gonna say one thing? Oh, just if you really want to take this to the nth degree, it is possible uh, through OLE and COM to plug dialog into Excel and you can actually write Excel cell formulas in APL so that when you run that on a, on a grid of data, it's your APL code actually running instead of VBA. That is possible <laughs> if you really want to. And Andrew, you got your hand up? You watched the seed presentation, right? Uh, I'm actually, I think I've watched it, but at this point it must be like two or three years ago because I first stumbled across your uh, stuff. Um, is the seed something I should go revisit? Cause I, that's the thing is I might not have been, uh, at the right moment to really fully appreciate it. Cause at one yeah, point, starting, I starting was, from this, starting from this topic, certainly. And Joao just said that the SPJ, which is the initials for Simon Peyton Jones, one of the key people behind Haskell said similar stuff about Excel and FP in general. Um, yeah, I, I think we'll, and we can find a link. Um, there is a couple talks given by Simon Peyton Jones on sort of functional programming in Excel and more, the most recent one I think is when like Excel 2019 or 2020 actually introduced um, like functional, like they introduced Lambda expressions and like functional programming uh, features so that now technically like Simon Peyton Jones said that his goal was for uh, Excel to be Turing complete, which it now is. Um, it looked it's horrible. It looks horrible. And he even said that himself. Is, is this the, really the way you want to do functional programming? Yeah, maybe not, but um, it's in Excel now. So uh, <laughs> um, I think with that, uh, I will say, first of all, thank you to all our panelists and our presenters and uh, Aaron Rodrigo for joining as well. And uh, even more so, thank you to uh, Gita, Morton, uh, Fiona, uh, Adam Rich, I assume you were involved in helping organize and just all of the folks uh, behind organizing Appleseeds. Um, I absolutely love the fact that there's not just one APL conference now, there are two APL conferences, and I look forward to a future where there are a double digit number of APL conferences throughout the year, uh, because I absolutely love uh, getting to come to these and see different, um, seeing different presentations by folks. So thank you for putting all this work uh, into this conference today and, and for letting us um, steal an hour of it to do a live recording. And I think with that, we will say happy array programming. Happy, happy array, array programming. programming.